This Hack Ed Leadership Podcast is coming to you from Cincinnati, Ohio, where I inspire innovation and personalization in schools and in life. Thanks for joining me today for Episode 7, where I talk to Tarek Camille, the founder of Circle, a personalized communication platform. He's driven by the question, why can't every organization personalize my experience, like Amazon and Netflix? In our interview, we discussed his product circle, as well as what employers want and need today and in the future, and what we as educators should be doing to help create the employee of tomorrow. Tarek, tell me a little bit about yourself and your background. Oh, Christine. <laughs> um, so let's see. I guess to keep it relatively brief, I started my first business in 98. This is year 19 of being an entrepreneur, business number five. And uh, prior to that, I was uh, worked for a big insurance company right out of college. And I was in emerging technology, which was cool. I loved that. And I had uh, gone to Dayton undergrad, three years pre-med realized do not want to do that as a career so I switched my major my senior year and switched to psychology of all things just because I thought it was interesting mm-hmm. so it's good learning for me I think after my junior year that you want to do things that you're passionate about and look forward to as opposed to making decisions about what's safe and secure and family and friends think you should be doing. Mm -hmm. I'm glad I learned that lesson at the age of 20 instead of 50 or 60 or never. So um, I've been really fortunate, I think, for 19 years to be doing things that I want to do, doing things for the right reasons as opposed to what's going to make you the most money. I think anyone who creates a business, it's into entrepreneurship because of money, is insane. Literally insane. You should be locked up. <laughs> because it doesn't make any sense. Uh, you just look at the salaries publicly traded executives make. They're making millions of dollars a year. Mm-hmm. They're like professional athletes. Right. Okay. The odds that you start a business and you're able to sell it for millions of dollars, period, not just per year, mm-hmm. is tiny. So I always caution people when I hear, oh, you've been an entrepreneur for 19 years. That seems amazing. I'm like, no, it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And so if you do it for money, you're a crazy person. So. I've really been passionate about entrepreneurship only from the perspective of getting people to chase what they're passionate about and stop chasing money. That, I think, is a mindset that we instill in people. I don't know why. I think it's a safety security issue. And we don't have enough people talking about what makes you happy. Either to students, you know, when they're in elementary school, middle school, high school, college, very rarely are we asking that question. Parents aren't asking that question. They get put on this conveyor belt of safety. 
That's not a good one to be on. Right. It's just, it just doesn't make sense. I agree with you. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> we see that a lot. Uh, yeah, and we have valedictorians that are killing themselves to achieve to go to a prestigious university when I don't know if they've enjoyed the journey. Mm -hmm. they've, they've been pursuing it in such a way that sometimes it can even make kids sick and um, it just, it's hard. Yeah, there was an interesting book. I don't remember who wrote it. Uh, I want to say it was a Gladwell book, but maybe it wasn't. But they studied these overachievers mm -hmm. and how they performed when they went to these really prestigious universities mm -hmm. versus the same level of achievement but I went to a regular mm -hmm. school mm -hmm. and they measured their success and they measured their happiness mm -hmm. and the students that went to a regular school both more successful and happier. I think there was some data that was in the originals did you read that book? I don't remember. I believe it has uh, some similar data in, inside of it. No. Or outliers, I don't know. That would have been Malcolm. Yes, could be. Probably it's outliers. Okay. So, yeah. Okay, so you had all of those companies and now you're doing something that you love. When you did, did you do all your business was, were they all something that you loved along the journey? Yes, except uh, yes, but not okay. all of them were. So let me take a step back. So I like love technology and I love mm -hmm. solving problems. Uh, I like competing. Mm -hmm. I like thinking out of the box. I like doing what other people have never thought of and then proving them wrong. Like I enjoy mm -hmm. those things. So the first company was technology, services, great. So we go into a proctor and we build a solution and we get out like that. I like going in, let's look at this problem from a technology lens, how can we solve that for you? And then they would love us. Oh my God, you took this process that took 30 days down to two days. You're amazing, right? That feels good. So that was the first company. The second company was all sports, analytics, data, all stuff I love, yep. math. Yep, and that designed to be a business, just happened to turn into one, mm -hmm. and then Fox acquired that business. And then the third company was golf-related. Mm -hmm. buddy of mine, he lives in New Zealand, and that was a good lesson in terms of conversations that you should have with your co-founder before you start, mm -hmm. making sure that you're on the same page, because we weren't. Fourth company was an IoT, so Internet of Things, mm -hmm. um, Smart Basketball, loved the idea, just the founder had a very different philosophy on the value of people mm -hmm. than I had. So, and then Circle, which of course I love, it's reinventing communication. Mm -hmm. So all of those, I've loved every kind of problem I've tried to solve. Mm -hmm. and none of them have started with, will this make money? Right. The question is never asked. I don't care. If there's a problem and you're passionate about solving it, that's really all you need. Mm -hmm. And if you do a good job, it's funny how people want to pay for that. <laughs> Agreed. 
And people, you know, the entrepreneurs that are successful, those are the ones that are passionate about what they're doing. Yes. The ones that are not, it either is boring to them and they, you know, um, or they don't succeed. One of those two. I, I and they think, leave the company. No, I, I think you're you're spot on. And um, the Start With Why book, Simon mm -hmm. Sinek, mm -hmm. it's a great lesson in that. And I look at, basically, if you haven't read the book, but the premise of that is how would you operate, what decisions would you make if you were the founder of this business? That's really, why did they find found the business? So they're making those decisions and operating, this is why we founded this business. And then what happens is as the business grows, it's bigger and ages, people forget. Why did we start in the first place? They're so far removed from it. And I like to point to the United Airlines incident where the doctor is dragged off the plane and they broke his nose. And I'm thinking, what if the founders of United Airlines were watching this go down mm -hmm. and they saw, well, we've got an overbooked flight and they're the founders of the airline. Are they dragging anyone off that plane? Right. Never. They would never do that. They would say, well, why don't we just keep off upping the number until someone accepts? That is why we exist. We want to make sure people have great travel experiences. That's why we started United Airlines. That is so far gone from how they operate. It's all about rules and procedures. So someone is saying, well, we have a rule that we can kick you off this plane. And we have a rule that we only go up to this level. Mm -hmm. And no one is taking a step back and saying, why do we exist? Is anyone associated with that incident would have stepped back and said we exist to make sure people have a great experience with us so i know the limit is thirteen hundred dollars mm -hmm. but we're going to keep going because there's right. no way we're dragging someone off a plane right. there's no way I'm, I'm letting that happen and here's the sad thing so if i was on that flight mm -hmm. and i'm working for united and i say I'm going to just keep offering money until someone accepts. And let's say you get to $2,000 and someone's like, all right, I'll get off this plane and I'll drive to Louisville for two grand. I don't think it was going to take that much, by the way. I would probably be fired by United Airlines because I violated the rule. Because they don't understand why they exist. And that's a huge issue. So it isn't to make money. It is we exist for a different reason. Companies age and grow out of that, get away from that as they get older. Um, but some companies have been able to hold on to that too. Done a really good job of holding on to why they exist. And almost always, the founders are still there. Well, Jeff Bezos is an example of when he has a meeting, he puts a chair, an empty chair, and that represents the customer. Mm -hmm. Your your customer is always in the room for every decision that you make, which. Um, whether you like him or don't like him, that's a great strategy. Right. You know, and of course, but again, he is still there. Google. Yep. Facebook. Yep. Right. So you see him recently until Steve Jobs mm -hmm. left. So Apple. Uh, so you have a lot of great companies where the founders still have an imprint. And it's only when they get removed from that does the why disappear. Yeah. It's not part of the culture. And those are all um, Fast Company in 2017, they're all in the top, all the companies that, that we just mentioned. 
So let's talk a little bit about innovation and what does innovation mean to you? Not the Webster's definition, the, mm. the Tarek definition. How do you know my last name isn't Webster? <laughs> we just went over that before the interview <laughs> okay. started so I could pronounce You're it properly. It funny. <laughs> it's pronounced Webster. Um, the K is silent. So I think innovation is the ability to ask questions. Mm -hmm. And I think all innovation comes from asking questions. And what's really disappointing, I think, is how we beat questioning out of everyone. So For compliance? For everything. So we're still in this kind of revolutionary mentality industrial age and we need to train our workers to not make mistakes and remember how to follow instructions get in line know the answers memorization none of that is really applicable today and the reason I say that is because of advances in computer technology and I can look up anything I need to on my phone and I can have that answer in seconds and with the advent of automation a lot of those jobs are being done by computers. So if it's anything that's repetitive, a computer's gonna be doing that. If it's not doing it now, it will be soon. So why are we teaching our kids to be outsourced by computer technology? That's what we do. We don't teach them the skills that you need to really be successful today. And your question is about innovation. And all companies are looking, how do we stay innovative? Mm -hmm. And it really is, do you have a culture where it's okay to question everything? Do you have a culture where the best idea wins no matter who it comes from? Whether it's an intern or the CEO, is that the best idea? Or is it a culture where we listen to you based on seniority and how much money you make, your title, and you trump everyone else? You are killing innovation. Innovation is, why do we do it that way? What if we could do it this way to facilitate and not just allow, but encourage? Anyone can ask any question about anything. Mm -hmm. Why aren't we doing that? So if you ask, what does innovation mean to me? It's really more a framework. It's more of a culture of can you ask anything that you want to ask and be rewarded not to be rated for asking questions that rarely exists i love your de definition of innovation i agree with that wholeheartedly i'm sorry i keep saying i agree i'm gonna to have to edit that out <laughs> you just lie and say you disagree no no because um it it is true, it is a framework, and the culture has to support it. And in fact, I was reading about Google, and you know they used to hire based on prestige, based on degree, and they're not doing that as much anymore. 15% of the people that work at Google aren't even degreed. They want problem solvers. They want people that can um, unravel and question and really dig deeply into problems. So it, it's not just your definition, it's, you know, I think, you nailed it, even if that's not what Webster says. <laughs> so, so let's talk a little bit about um, personalization. Okay. Because in coming from the educational world, we are looking at 
um, kind of a, a, it's a new world, even though people have been doing this forever in, in some classrooms of trying to personalize the experience, but it's not pervasive. The one size fits all is, is moving out and the personalization is moving in, but that's just education. So you've tackled the communication and yes. personalizing communication. So talk a little bit about how your company at Circle is personalizing communication for, you're doing it for a lot of educational institutions too, mm -hmm. not necessarily all K-12, but correct. talk about how that works and what you're trying to, to achieve. Well, I think just in general, the trend line that we're on is that everything is becoming more personalized. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's happening is because there is so much noise and we've created this culture where I think because of technology, it's both a blessing and a curse. So the blessing is I can look up any state capital. I don't have to memorize that anymore. I don't need to know cursive. Don't teach me that. So that's a blessing. Mm -hmm. Great. I love this instant knowledge. The curse is that it's provided everyone an easy way to access me and my time and my attention. And so what's happening is people feel more and more underwater. I can't keep up. I can't get through Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and LinkedIn and Instagram. Plus, I'm getting 100 emails a day. This is just on my phone. Forget about family life, kids, work, extracurricular activities, there is this pervasive sense of we are collectively drowning. And so one of the lifesavers that has been thrown out has been personalization, which is, as I define it, how do we create an experience tailored to you based on what you're interested in, what's relevant to you. And there have been brands that do this really well. So they've figured this out. This is your Amazon, this is your Netflix, Hulu, Pandora, Spotify. All different industries, they're selling different things, providing different services, but they do it in a very similar way. So I'm gonna watch Christine's behavior and I'm gonna give her more of what she likes. And when her behavior changes, it will change her experience. So if you think about Netflix and how they engage you, it is, welcome back, Christine. Here's where you left off. Here's what we recommend based on what you're watching. Here's what's trending with other people that watch the same things that you watch. And an amazing statistic that I saw was 80% of what is consumed on Netflix is based on what they recommend for you not based on you searching. That is a great testament to the power of personalizing that experience. And I look at this as the wave of the future. I think, I don't know when this is gonna happen, but I think in the next, certainly in our lifetime, the concept of sending or doing mass anything Will, will be like um, stagecoach, smoke signals, <laughs> Archaic. hieroglyphics. Yep. It's going to seem prehistoric. So the 
Do you remember the days where we used to send the same email to 10,000 people? People are not laughing. Right, so it's the same like when you talk to your kids about, do you, do you remember the days where we actually had to go to the library to look things up? Because there was no internet, there was no email. That is shocking to them. Like you had to go to the record store and buy an album or a cassette tape. They are blown away by this. Right. Oh my God, how old are you? Right, is the next question. I don't think we're that far away where we're going to look back and we're going to say, do you remember the days where we used to send the same thing to everybody? People are like, why would you ever do that? Everybody's different. And yet that's exactly what we're doing today. So you know, my concept and take on it is we have been communicating the same way for hundreds if not thousands of years. I have something I want to say, it goes out to everyone. And I don't really care how that resonates with you. And I don't make adjustments based on any of that. I just vomit information. I create it in the way audience. that works for me Yes, and I send it to you. On my schedule, at my cadence, with what I think is the most uh, relevant story as the lead story, and I pick these eight to make it, and the rest get left out. Somebody's guessing on all of that. Mm -hmm. So this concept of guessing, we should never be guessing. Amazon is not guessing about what items to recommend to you. Pandora is not guessing about, oh, you like all this music, you're going to like this song next. That's using data to make better decisions and then personalize your experience. And so they know if it's personalized and relevant to me and it's saving me time or adding value to my life, you're much more likely to be brand loyal and come back communication. We're not doing any of that, or nobody has been until now, I think. So tell me about Circle. So we take that same approach that Netflix has taken with shows and, and movies, and we apply that to communication. So if you think of each show as having characteristics, so House of Cards has characteristics. It's a thriller, it's uh, adult-oriented, it's politics, it's drama, it's Washington, D.C. It's got all these characteristics around it. Why can't we apply the same thought to a piece of content? Here is a story about physics. Here's a story about history. Right? So each individual piece of content has a characteristic. So how does Netflix know what to recommend to you? It looks at the characteristics and then it looks at your behavior. And what, are your, what are you consuming? So if you were to binge watch House of Cards in a weekend, so I think it comes out two weeks, <laughs> and Christine binge watches the whole season that weekend, that is a really big indicator of you're gonna like West Wing because it's very similar and we see how you consume this or you might like other like HBO type dramas because of how you consume this. Mm -hmm. If it takes you two years to watch that one season, you start an episode, you get 10 minutes in, you stop, pick it up three months later, 
that also is telling us something. Yeah, she's got a little interest in it, but not really. What else can we learn based on behavior? So we took the same concept and we said, why don't we apply this uh, concept to content? And why don't we watch how people consume content and then give them more of that? And why don't we tailor that experience based on what you're consuming? So if I send you a bunch of content and you are constantly engaging with technology, marketing, education, great. We know based on your behavior, you want more of that. And let's say you stop reading things we send you about technology. Great. Well, that will just slowly move down mm -hmm. and something else will take its place. Mm -hmm. but it's constantly adapting and growing with it's you dynamic. your interests change, as opposed to everyone gets the same thing. We don't care whether you want technology content or not. We want you to have that. So it is this intersection of massive amounts of content being generated. The statistic of we generate more content in four hours than we did from the beginning of time to 2003 combined really illustrates why people feel like they're drowning. How am I going to keep up with this? And so our solution is uh, same way I Netflix engages me or Amazon. Why can't we tailor the communication from an organization based on each individual's interests, mm -hmm. schedule, day and time, format, language they want it delivered in? Why don't we let the recipient control the conversation? And so the learning has been when we do that, when we turn that over to the recipient, we on average see double the engagement in terms of open rates and six times the increase in click-through rates, meaning are you sending me content that I actually care about? So we know that personalization works. We've seen it with other brands. We know it with thousand customers that we have and watching their analytics and metrics every month knowing that that's working. And the best part of all of this is that, well, the best part is increased engagement. Mm -hmm. The second best part is that we eliminate work for the organization. So here was a scenario where you were spending a lot of time, the 15th of the month, give me stories, we gotta send out the newsletter. Why should the subject line be? What's the lead story? What makes it, what doesn't make it? What day and time should we send this? and it's all gonna be sent in English. So someone is spending a ridiculous amount of time and energy for very little result. So the ROI on how we communicate today is terrible. So not only are we going to double on average your engagement, we're going to eliminate you from having to any, spend any time doing it because a computer is doing it all for you. Computer is deciding what should the subject line be for Christine? And what should the subject line be for Bob and Jim and Susan? They're all different people. They all care about different things. So if you have an audience of 10,000 people, why don't we send 10,000 different things? Well, a human could never do that. Not efficiently. 
but a computer can do it easily. We do that in seconds. So we're going to go through, we're going to look at what you like, what your behavior tells us you like, send it at the day and time that you want, and at the frequency that you want. And computer puts it all together for you. So the organization looks like rock stars. Mm -hmm. Look how innovative we are. We care about you. And you do. And it's saving them time and money, and they're getting double the engagement. So that's, you know, when you ask the question, it's like, what is personalization mm -hmm. to me? It is all of those things. At the end of the day, it is building a tighter relationship with that single person. Mm -hmm. It is one-to-one -one communication. Mm -hmm. It is learning about your interests and being able to understand that and then have the organization say, wow, I didn't know 62% of our parents were into technology. Maybe we should have events more focused on technology. Right. Or maybe we should offer classes more focused on technology. How would you know? And some, some organizations might say, well, we survey. Yeah, surveys are completely ineffective and everyone knows that so people will put down in a survey what they think you want to hear mm -hmm. not what they actually believe so we believe in behavior behavior tells me who you really are what you need mm -hmm. is what you are what you click on is what you are and there's this great uh, I think book that just came out a researcher that just published all this data about understanding what's really going on in the United States based solely on Google searches. Looking at their analytics yes. and their trends? Yes. So when President Obama was elected, mm -hmm. watching a spike in racial slurs and what people are searching for and hate. You can, but people, like you did a survey, no, we don't have any issues, everything's fine. But when you look at Google, mm -hmm. it identified no there's a lot of angst going on there that's all based on people's behavior mm -hmm. surveys it's the old adage actions speak louder than words it's the truth mm -hmm. so we believe that well in the old model at least you know i've done a lot of newsletters in my day so we have constant contact mailchimp essentially yes. you're exactly right it's you know everybody trying to scrape information that we think people will be interested in. And it's our own perception of what people are interested in. And ultimately, it's the person that's putting the newsletter together yes. that is deciding really what is interesting to everyone else because they're the ones laying it out. They're the ones putting everything where they think it belongs. And then you just send it out and you get frustrated that nobody's reading it. Correct. So that's kind of the old model. So one of the things that, that you briefly touched on, but I want to clarify because I think it's interesting when you're saying they don't have to do anything. It's essentially what your platform does and it goes and grabs content that like an organization is already producing. Yes. So we have a blog over here. We have multiple blogs. Say, you know, we're a school district. So each of our buildings is doing communicating in a different way, mm -hmm. a different platform. So Circle would go out and based on behavior, start finding things, not just from each building's blogs, but like you said, technology. So it'll come over to my department and grab some of that content. Yes. So you, you start though in a more generalized and then you start honing as the behavior has time to present itself. Is that correct? Correct. So what will happen is, so in your specific instance, you might say, I want Circle to monitor 
these 12 channels that mm -hmm. we produce digital content. So our teachers are posting content, then each teacher might have a page, the principal has a page, mm -hmm. the school has a page, the district has a page, we have a YouTube channel, great. I want you to listen to all of that. Mm -hmm. And when you find a piece of content, I want you to categorize that. Was this a story about English? Mm -hmm. Is this a story about reading? Is this a story about psychology, marketing, tech? What is it? Band? Mm -hmm. Athletics? Great. So grab all of this content and hold on to it. Just hold on to it. And then each parent, so you got 10,000 parents, mm -hmm. can say, I want to hear from the district every two weeks. But I want to hear from my son or daughter's school every week or even every day. And so what will happen is at the day and time that they choose, it's going to go and it's going to look at all this content that it found. It's going to say, well, I found 80 stories. And of those 80 stories, this parent is really interested in math, science, technology. What stories should this parent see? And it creates a personalized experience just based on their interests and their behavior. Different parent might be more interested in the arts and theater and what's going on with the band. They have a very different experience with the school district, but they're seeing what would be relevant and interesting to them. And then what we see over time is that as we learn more and more about their interests and the relationship between the content that they're receiving and what they actually want to see gets stronger, we see this trust regained. The reason it is hard to put a constant contact or MailChimp out, it's not relevant to me. You might think these things are interesting, but I as a parent don't. And so I'm going to stop opening, I'm going to stop reading because you've broken that trust. And so it takes a little bit of time, but then they start to feel that trust again. Wow, this is always good. There's always something in there that you're really capturing my attention. And I don't have to dig for it, it's normally my first story. That is power. And you're learning about these parents all along the way. But it takes you out of the middle. Guessing. Right. I don't want anyone to guess anymore. You don't have the luxury that we used to have 50 years ago where there are three television stations. I remember those A couple days. of radio stations. Mm -hmm. No satellite, no cable, no internet. Get one or two newspapers. That's it. Mm -hmm. So when you send something to the parents back then, they would read it because they're not underwater with a thousand other people trying to mm -hmm. grab their attention. Mm -hmm. You can get away with that. Today, you can't. It's not that school districts are doing anything wrong, it's that the demographics have changed. It's that everyone is trying to grab your parents' attention. And if you aren't providing relevant content, they're gonna go to whoever is. So essentially you are integrating artificial intelligence. You're taking analytics, you're doing, um, assessing and analyzing all the information in the background based on their behavior yes. to deliver it. I mean, similar to Amazon, so, Amazon's looking at my behavior, but I'm looking at my webmail and all of a sudden 
the exact same thing I search for in Amazon is presented to me right beside within my email. Yes. You know, so it's it's penetrating and it's looking at all those different platforms. So, but it is still a form of artificial intelligence and analytics and statistics and algorithms. Yep. That's right. So it's really, um, so it's machine learning. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing is we are just constantly watching your behavior. And it's not your behavior all over mm -hmm. the internet. It is only your behavior with email or coming to our website mm -hmm. and how you engage with that mm -hmm. content. So we don't follow you into social media. Mm -hmm. None of that is happening. But yes, it's machine learning to say, Christine's interests have changed. She used to love tech and now she's not engaging with it anymore. She's really into math. Great. What math content can we deliver to her? We don't, I don't want to fight you. I want to right. give you what you want. So I love the journey you've taken me on with, with Circle and because I believe the world's going into such a personalized direction, I think your platform, um, I think is only going to grow. It's going to be interesting. You and I have had some other interesting conversations <laughs> about where you're taking it and um, the way it can actually help how people are using their practice too. So for instance, you know, if um, say if an educational institution was using your um, information as as you mentioned and they're interested in technology well we use that data and see that all these people are interested in technology so we need to change our practice in other things that we can augment in the area of technology yes um, in our offerings not just in our communication but in our practice yes what other things should we be doing this you know this population is very interested yes in learning more about this so that's pretty cool so now I want you to um, move away from um, your business and help us think a little bit about what advice would you give a student that is has that entrepreneurial mindset of what what are things that they should be doing or what advice would you give them um, to help them in their journey? So the first one I think goes back to your motivation. If you are motivated to be a millionaire, you are insane to be an entrepreneur. If you are motivated kept up at night and thinking about problems. This problem has a hold of you and you can't stop thinking about it. And it makes you feel good when you solve problems. And that is worth more than any amount of money anyone could ever give you. You will be a great entrepreneur. So entrepreneurs have this interesting view of the world. So everywhere they go, they see opportunities to improve. They question everything. They don't take anything for granted. And I'm not saying all entrepreneurs do this because mm -hmm. some do get mm -hmm. into business to make money and they're not good. Mm -hmm. They're not good entrepreneurs. Right. I'm saying in general, if you look at the entrepreneurs that have really disrupted things and created meaningful long-term value, it isn't started to make money. It is started because they genuinely want to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. They don't care about money. And so I start with what's your motivation? I think about what are you passionate about? So are you really passionate about solving this problem? Great. I think, are you intelligent? Right. Do you have the ability to problem solve. And then, are you persistent? 
So really great entrepreneurs have all of those skills to some extent, if not all of them. And persistence is a big one because I think there's this misconception that entrepreneurs um, wake up in the middle of the night and they have this great idea and then they build it the next day and now you've got this business and people love you. That literally has never happened. Not a single time. <laughs> what happens is you have a problem you can't stop thinking about. And you come up with a thesis as to a solution and you start there. But that's almost never the answer. It is, what if we could do it this way? And you put it out there and you try and that's not quite it. And you keep tweaking and tweaking and tweaking. And because of persistence, they won't let it go. And they eventually will come up with a solution that solves this problem. And it, honestly, I think it's to the point of, it just would make me happy that I've solved this problem. The fact that lots and lots of other people suffer from the same problem is nice too. So I can help them. That's really, you know, the, the big things that I would say separate uh, entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs from entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs from everyone else. Okay, it's interesting. So, also, you you employ how many employees do you have now? Twenty. Twenty. So, what do you look for in an employee when they come to your to your company, especially in the younger ones? Because you know, I want to get to the area of. How can we prepare um, the right type of future employee as an educational system? I think it's a great question. And I will give you my answer. And it's probably very different than what a traditional company would tell you that they look for. What I look for is three things and they're all entrepreneurial. Are you passionate about what I need you to do? So if I'm hiring a marketer, do you love marketing? One of the first questions I'll ask you is, what do you do in your spare time? Because what you do in your spare time gives me the true sense of who you really are. And what you love to do. What you love to do. I need you to love this. I need you to love marketing. That's number one. Are you smart? Because it's full of problems, we're a small business. It's not like we've been doing this for 150 years and this process has been ironed out. It is messy and it's chaotic. And if it's not, we're doing something wrong. But a lot of people don't like that. They want to be told what to do. And then the work ethic. Do you work your ass off? <laughs> I don't know if I'm supposed to cuss on this. You can edit that out, I guess. That's not really a cuss word. Right. Taking it easy on you. It, it's a mild one. Okay. This is really not designed for students, so. Okay. Let's um, start right It's in the Webster's. It's in the dictionary. It, it is. So so maybe it doesn't qualify, but ain't's in the dictionary, and that still feels wrong. Mm. Um, so it's kind of those three things. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care if you have a degree. I don't care what your grade point average is. None of that stuff matters to me, but that's what we teach. And 
all of that I think is kind of old school thinking. Uh, especially given kind of what's going on in higher education and the cost of higher education, people are starting to question, is it worth it? When edX is offering free courses from Stanford, from Berkeley, from MIT, you know, you can actually consume their courses and um, I, I just think it's incredible. Yeah. And so you still consider yourself to be a startup. Or do you? What do you consider to be? Uh, I don't your know what the next be. thing is. So, small business maybe. Mm -hmm. so okay. To me, kind of startup is has this connotation of you're trying to figure something out. You're not sure if it's going to work or not. May or may not be a business. That's good. We, it's helping me to to delineate the two. Yes. Um, I we're we're not there. Mm -hmm. Just like. Is Google a startup? No. Is Facebook a startup? No. Twitter? No. But do they do a lot of startup-y things? Do they think innovatively? Sure. So I think there's two ways to look at that word. One is, I've got an idea. I'm not sure if it's going to be successful. I'm going to try it. Another connotation that's been associated with the word startup is you move fast, mm -hmm. and you think innovatively, and you challenge everything. So, one sense of the term, we're not a startup. Mm -hmm. like, are we a business, and will we be around, and what if we don't raise any money, would you still be here? I'd say, yes, that's probably a good litmus test. Mm -hmm. So if you ask the company, if you don't raise any more money from investors, mm -hmm. can you survive? And if the answer is no, then you're still a startup. Yeah. The answer is yes. You're whatever's next. Small business, I think. Small is. business, that's fine. And then there is this other connotation, which is: Do you still want to move and operate like a startup? And big companies want that too. Mm -hmm. You see that all the time. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the thing that's going on right now, which is you want to act like a startup, mm -hmm. and it means certain things. It means. We challenge everything. We ask questions about everything. We assume nothing. And you have people that are just really passionate about solving some issue. And there are some big companies that have been able to kind of introduce the startup culture into what they do. So, wouldn't say we're a startup. Okay, so from, you mentioned work ethic. So, with the new type of worker that 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. What's your mindset and what is the mindset of the employees? Do you have a set time that they're coming in and they're leaving? Is it coming in and out? Is it stay until the work is done? What is the, I just am curious about the culture and, and that's changing because there's a, there are a variety of models out there. I was just curious what, what you do here. So for me, it is trust. Mm -hmm. So if I've done a good job of identifying someone who is passionate, smart, and works hard, then I don't have to motivate them. They're internally, intrinsically motivated to do whatever it is that they're wrestling with. And do you care if they work at home or if they work here or if they work over at Starbucks or where? I have no idea where anyone is at any time. 
I have and, no and that's idea. different. I mean, I think that is a key on the innovative companies, the smaller ones in particular. I think in the larger ones, for instance, I thought it was Yahoo, and they had a work-at-home policy, and then they, they jerked it back because people were taking advantage of it. Mm -hmm. But it was so big that it's hard to have trust Correct. among all of those employees. Yeah, and we're not, obviously we're not to that size, mm -hmm. but kind of how we're structured is everybody's got a job to do. Mm -hmm. and everyone is held accountable because we're all part of a team. And so if you're not doing your job, it's blatantly obvious. Mm -hmm. And so you've seen or maybe heard about how larger organizations are you know, carving themselves up into little companies. Mm -hmm. So it's self-contained units where you've got a marketer, sales, tech, and you guys all work together. Mm -hmm. And it becomes blatantly obvious that Christine's not, that I think is effective. Yeah. But it comes, it starts with a place of um, trust. And I think that's core to any, you've hit on some, some really big words in, in our interview. Consistent values. Ass. Trust. Ass. <laughs> Uh, you know, those are those are big in any organization. You want people to have consistent values. Yes. You want to trust them. You want them to question. There are just a, a lot of good nuggets that, that I've found in, in what you've talked about. So now let's swing to an educator. Okay. So for today's employee um, and to be successful in the new world, which is the creative age, it's no longer the industrial age, what do you feel education should look like to create the type of employee that we're going to need as a nation and as a world? Um, I, th I think it is about exploration. I think that K through 12 experience should be helping children figure out what they're drawn to, figure out what they're passionate about. I think it should be much less about testing, much less about grade point average, because if you get through the first 17, 18, 19 years of your life, and you still have no clue, like you're completely clueless. Here's why that's a huge problem. So now I'm gonna to go to college. I still don't know what I want to do. But now I'm paying 40 or 50 grand a year to figure it out. Did you ever just buy a house, spend $200,000 on a house, not really know, do I want a ranch, do I want two-story, do I want to be in the suburbs, do I want to be in the city? But that's what we're asking these kids to do. To me, it is a miss. It is, we've always taught this way. And it's all about grades and grade point average and memorization. None of those skills translate into success. It is about, can you communicate? Can you solve problems? Do you know what you're passionate about? Do you have empathy? Do you know how to work in a team? Do you have emotional intelligence? We don't teach any of that stuff. So I feel like schools to comply with issues that were never there before, and they've got to chase their tail. It is 
complete joke of how politicians ruin education. Instead, they should be saying, hmm, what schools are really doing a great job? Let's go to them and ask them, how are you doing that? Can we take that as a best practice and apply it to other schools? They don't think that way. That doesn't make headlines. So a lot of it isn't the school's fault. A lot of it is because you are forced to comply with rules and regulations. We've got to teach this. Why are we teaching foreign language? Why is that a requirement for graduation? Why aren't we teaching technology? Mm -hmm. That seems like no kid should be able to graduate with having, you have to have a fundamental understanding of software. Not saying you have to be a programmer, but it can't be a mystery to you. Well, in many states are actually, they're making coding a foreign language. I recommended that to Madeira mm -hmm. 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. But it's gotta go through the state of Ohio. Right, right. Yeah, good luck with that. But it's, it's this quicksand. Mm -hmm. It takes so long to turn the ship. Mm -hmm. It does. That is a huge problem. And so when you see things like, um, we need technology, we need more technologists, and we're gonna have 10,000 open mm -hmm. jobs in Southwest Ohio by 2020, IT jobs. Mm -hmm and we can't get kids to enroll in computer science and mm -hmm. you can graduate with never taking a technology class. That is insane to me mm -hmm. that it takes this long to make change. We need to be much more reactive. I think if we could get politics out of education mm -hmm. and give more control locally, Listen, we're killing it. Don't tell us what to do. You guys should be coming here and taking notes. That doesn't happen. So we get forced to chase our tail mm -hmm. and keep us busy. Mm -hmm. And the big issue, and I think part of it is, I would love to give them credit. Like, what we're missing is the power to engage our community. So when I see things like taxpayer dollars going to fund private education. Mm -hmm and no one in your community knows about it. And we can't do anything. Okay, school board passes a resolution saying we don't like this. So what? Mm -hmm. That is not meaningful in any way. It is, we need your help. So that was a rant, so, which I got so, off nope, on that, anyway. That was um, big on how we can make systematic change. What do you, do you have any advice for a small change that a teacher could make so you know everybody that's the only thing they have control over is themselves is there anything that teachers could be doing to help prepare their students or as they approach their classroom mm -hmm. you know what what changes would you recommend that a teacher and when i say change i mean relative to when you were in school mm -hmm. so let's assume <laughs> um, you know that, that things have changed. So what change would you want to see if, if you were in school today mm -hmm. and knowing what you know of owning a business and having lots and lots of people in your network that yes. you also understand their needs as well. So you're yes. not just speaking from um, your perspective. You you know a lot of opinions just on based on people that you know. So do you have any 
thoughts about that. I have lots of thoughts about that. <laughs> so, if I were talking to a teacher, yes, I would say you need to flip from uh, telling students what to think to encouraging them to ask questions. So, there was a great exercise I've seen where they'll come up with a topic and the students are broken up into groups five or six students in a group and you're given five minutes and you need to list as many questions as you can about whatever that topic is so let's say it's um, the demise of the honeybee will be catastrophic mm -hmm. for the earth which is just true. put it up as a statement great students for five minutes are forced to ask questions no one can make a statement it's not fact it is questions and it encourages everyone to engage it makes you feel normal to ask questions you're rewarded the more questions you ask the better you guys did so it's flipping this paradigm of don't ask questions or you're gonna look stupid if you raise your mm -hmm. hand. You have to ask questions. Then they go through and they go to each group. How many questions you come up with in five minutes? We have 46 questions, we got 61 questions, we got 13 questions. Ooh, you only came up with 13, right? <laughs> it is 180 degrees from how we make kids feel about asking questions. Mm -hmm. And it gets them to think, well, um, what does dem demise mean? What does catastrophic mean? Uh, how many honeybees would have to die? Mm -hmm. What's killing them? Like it, it spurs mm -hmm. them to think. The teacher is doing nothing at this mm -hmm. point mm -hmm. other than, I want to get this point across. Mm -hmm. You are going to direct me on how to teach it to. So A, we're going to encourage them to ask questions. B, each group then gets back together. Give me your top three questions that you'd like to have answered. Then each group goes around again. These are our top three. And their top three. And their top three. And what they're seeing is how other students are thinking. And from that, they will agree on a consensus. These are the top three questions we would love to know. They now have bought it. They want, really want to know the answers to this is such a different way to think you really want to teach that subject because they're self-directing and you are teaching them how to ask questions you have to ask questions no innovation happens without the ability to ask questions it goes back to what you define as innovation yes is asking questions correct and who do you want to work for you innovators right whether you're an entrepreneur or you're a company, I want people that will innovate, keep us moving forward. And yet we beat that skill out of these kids. So if I were a teacher, I would be thinking, how do I encourage more question? How do I make it the student's choice? So A, I think more group work because that's real life. I think more presentation, more collaboration, any opportunity to inject that into the classroom. Questioning should be the foundation of everything. 
and then picking something that you're passionate about. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it can be anything. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you're trying to teach, but let's say it's math. Mm -hmm. You have this math issue. Say, what are you interested in? You're interested in sports and technology and health and whatever. Great. How can we find a math subject problem that communicates what I want to teach you, but in a way that resonates with you? It's real. Mm -hmm. It isn't just doing work, just to memorize times tables and things. So that goes back to how do we make this K through 12 experience more of a, hey, here's a buffet. Mm -hmm. Go try all the food and see what you like. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to like everything, and that's okay. That's not the point. The point is, when you graduate, can we have higher than 5% of our student population that knows what they really want to do with their lives? Because then they go off to college, and you don't have the room for error like we used to. Mm -hmm. with tuition. Oh, I can't change majors again. It's too expensive. That's a great point. So... I cannot do that. How do we get more outside influence from the community into the classroom? I know little Timmy is really interested in medicine. Great. Who can we bring in? Talk to him about, oh, well, here's what it's like to be in the medical field or technology field or write software. Ah, it's not what I thought it was going to be like at all. Mm -hmm. That sounds terrible. Good. I want you to know that now. So you can decide, oh, I'm in seventh grade, writing software sounds awesome, I talked to a software developer, I totally love this, I can imagine doing that every day. Great, because when I tell you that, I'm also going to tell you the importance of taking math and philosophy and music. And like, why music? Like, that is exactly what software is. Mm -hmm. You start with a blank piece of paper and you are composing things, you are solving a problem. Oh, I would never have thought to take that, right? So they are blind mm -hmm. until someone tells them, mm -hmm. here's how it all fits together. Right. It gives them purpose. So when you get to high school, I'm really paying attention in math class because I know if I want to be a software developer, that's important. It teaches me the skills of how to solve problems. A lot of so how early do you think those exposures to businesses and, and careers and um, mentors, I guess. How early do you think that exposure should start? Preschool. As soon as possible. As soon as they begin school? It's, yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, it should start with the parents, but yes. If, if you're asking me what should the role of schools be mm -hmm. in that process, mm -hmm. it should be exposing them to as many different plates of food mm -hmm. as you possibly can. Because you've seen it. When a kid is passionate about something, mm -hmm. they learn in a very, very different way. They explode. They explode. How do we figure out what each student is passionate about as fast as we can? And it might be more than one thing. And maybe they'll change over time. But if you really want them to be engaged learners, I need to know what drives you. That is so important. I can't think of anything more important. I think that's a perfect ending. That's awesome. Thank you for listening to the Hack Ed Leadership Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, tell your friends and colleagues. 
Additional resources can be found at hackedleadership.com. Have a great day, and don't forget to stretch yourself and inspire others.